turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. The psalmist in Psalm 19 tells us this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Let's pray. God, we come to this time of hearing your word, studying your word, your perfect, sure right and pure word. God, our prayer is that you would revive our soul, make wise the simple, bring rejoicing to our hearts, and enlighten our eyes in this moment. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. You know, as a, as a sports fan, this is one of my favorite times of year because in January it starts the playoffs for the NFL and Greatly enjoy that, have an exciting game for my family coming up today. And then this just leads in to March, March Madness, another time of the year that I enjoy. I, I just love January moving through to March into early April. It's, it's just a great time of watching sports if you like sports. And, and one thing you'll, you'll note there, and I think, I think maybe the, the thing I really enjoy is you see the, the great accomplishments of teams together, the, the trials they go through in the regular season, coming together and, and doing great feats and accomplishments and victories, great sacrifices perhaps on the court or on the field of play as they go through the ups and downs of the season and into the playoffs. And one thing you'll, you'll notice, I don't know if you've, you've seen this or taken note of this, perhaps if you watch March Madness or even some of the, the, the football games, is a lot of the warm-up gear that they're wearing now, and on the back of it, it'll say family, or it'll have a, a word on there that the coach has kind of chosen to define who they are and define their commitment to one another. And family is on there quite often. It's a statement that, that simply is reminding them and, and declaring to them and to those around that, that they see one another as family. They are committed to one another. They have a, a unique bond with one another. They have a responsibility towards one another, and they're going to give everything they can for this brotherhood or this sisterhood that they have as they go through the seasons, they go through the tournament, they're committed to one another. There's no sacrifice too great on the field of play or on the court for my family. Well, I think one of the great tragedies in much of modern Christianity is that we see that on the athletic field, we see that on the court of play, and in many ways, in many times, we've failed to show it and have it as the people of God. We see a bond so strong in those moments. You've probably, many of you in here, have been a part of those teams, Right? where you look back and you, you think back on those teams and, and all the battles, so to speak, that you went through and fought, we should have that bond here. The family of God should have that bond and that sense of responsibility to one another. But I would say in many ways we have kind of relegated our idea of, of, of our following Christ to merely a, a religion, 
merely a, a box that we check off, something we affiliate with, just something that's this kind of this, this sterile Christian faith or religion. And it's this understanding of Christianity that's really divorced many times from our mutual responsibility that we have for one another. The, the commitment that we should have toward one another, the, the spirit of sacrifice that we should have toward one another. You, know, you think about Scripture, and, and we're called the, the children of God. We're called the body of Christ. We're called the household of God. And as such, we do have a very unique bond towards one another. We should have a unique commitment to one another. We should have a, a unique relationship with one another. You, you think all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 when you had the, the incident of Cain and Abel and, and, and Cain kills his brother and, and when God comes to confront him and speak to him about that, what is Cain's question? Am, am I my brother's keeper? Well, Scripture, throughout the rest of the Scripture, throughout the rest of the biblical narrative, and particularly as you get into the New Testament, the answer is a resounding yes. Yes, you do have a responsibility towards your brother. There is a commitment that you should have with your brother and sister in Christ, particularly. This passage in Matthew 18, as I told you last week, is, is a passage we get into 18. It's, it's the fourth of Jesus' major discourses that Matthew records for us. And this discourse is particularly talking about how we live together as God's people in his kingdom. What does it look like for the messianic kingdom to live and to function together as the people of God? Particularly our passage today as we look at verses 5 through, 10, or 5 through 9 of chapter 18 is going to focus on the, the responsibility we have towards one another as a part of the body of Christ and a part of those who should care for and watch out for the spiritual health and well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's read this morning. I'm going to start in verse 1 because verse 1 through 4 that we looked at last week is so uh, connected to verses 5 through 9 to help us with the context. So we'll begin, in, begin reading in Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that Temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter into life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. We look at this passage, and this morning we want to kind of focus on five through nine, and we're going to do so by asking three questions. We're just going to ask three questions of the text, and that'll walk us through the text to understand what exactly Jesus is teaching in this moment. 
The first question that we need to ask is this, is who is Jesus talking about here? Who is Jesus talking about? Who is he referring to? Is he referring to children or is he referring to believers? So if you you look back in in verse 2 of chapter 18, Jesus brings a child in. And we talked last week that he brings that child in as an example. And that example, you might remember, is the example of what it looks like to have humble faith. The humility that should be seen in turning to Christ. That a true believer humbly comes before before the Lord in faith. So in verses 5 through 6, Jesus continues the conversation, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. So he's talking here about true believers. He's talking about who it is that, that is a true believer, a true follower of Christ. So the, the passage we're looking at this morning is not primarily focused on a child, or children. This isn't a, a proof text or, or a place where we come and we say, Here, here's a, a foundational text for children's ministry. He's using the child and children as an example of the true believer who comes to Christ in humble, trusting faith. You, you, might, you might just take note there in verse, uh, verse 6 when he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Right? When he says, who believe in me, he's describing the little ones. Right? So he's not just saying this for a child, but he's saying these little ones who believe in me. It's the, the true believer who comes to him. He's talking about believers here. In, later on in, in chapter 19, a part of this same discourse, in, in verses uh, 13 to 15, there, there's a statement that's more, where Jesus is talking more about children and focused on children. Here he's talking about believers. So we'll, we'll think about children and their place in the kingdom later in chapter 19. But today he's talking about the true believer, the true follower of Christ. The second question we want to ask of the text is this. What are we called to do in relation to other believers? What are, what are we called to do in relation to other believers. This primarily looks at verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 and 7, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. So what are we called to do in relation to other believers? There's three things that we need to understand about our relationship with other believers. The first thing is this, is that we are to receive other believers as receiving Christ. We're to receive them as we would receive Christ. You see that in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So we welcome other believers not based on their perceived greatness, not according to their social standing, not according to their influence, not according to how they're dressed, not according to what they can do for us. We receive other believers. We welcome them into fellowship because of who they are in Christ, that they are one of his. They are a true believer. And so we accept them and welcome them in. And the reason for this is what we would know as and what we would describe as something called union with Christ. Union with Christ. It's meaning the solidarity or the unity that we have with Christ as a result of our salvation that God has granted us and, 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 and made real in our lives. So we, we are at one with Christ. We are united with Christ. So in Scripture, you see phrases like, in Jesus, those who are in Jesus, in Christ, in God, in the Lord. All of those 
phrases talk about our union with him, our, our solidarity with him, the, the work that he's done in our lives. So examples of this would be like Galatians 2.20, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? In Colossians 3.3, 3, we read, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. As a result of our salvation, we are in Christ. We are in union with him. Now, the importance of that, why I bring that out is this, is that it means that to receive one in Christ or to hurt or harm one in Christ has a direct impact upon the person of Christ himself. That's something we need to understand. To receive, to hurt, to persecute a believer is to do so not only to the person, but to Jesus himself. Scripture makes that clear in a lot of places. Here's three examples. One is in Zechariah 2.8. Zechariah 2.8, where the people of God, when afflicted, when harmed, is, is described as harming God, bringing harm upon him. The, as the people who harmed them are described as those who would poke God in the eye. He says this, he says, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And he's talking about there that, that, that um, illustration is talking about the center of the eye. The apple of the eye, he's poking me right in the middle of the eye. So he who harms the people of God is poking God in the eye, right? Just relaying that. In Matthew 25, 40, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. He's talking about the end of times, the end of days. And he, he gives this example, and, and he gives both a good example and a bad example in that place of, of those who serve the least of these in the kingdom and, and those who did not, right? And, and the disciples go, well, we, we never knew we served you. And he said, as you do the least of these, you do unto me, because we are in Christ. In Acts 9.4, remember Saul is going about, he's persecuting the Christians. And on the Damascus road, Christ makes himself known to Saul and what is the question he asked? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. Why are you persecuting me? So we are at union with Christ, and our union with Christ means that the well-being or the reception of those who are in Christ is we receive them as we receive Christ, but also the harm we would do has an impact upon our Lord as well. So we have a unique and an important responsibility to others in the body of Christ. We need to know that. The second thing we answer the question, what are we called to do in relation to other believers? The second thing we need to see is this, is that we need to embrace our responsibility to not cause others to stumble. Verses six and seven, embrace our responsibility to not cause others to stumble. So we need to remember what we just talked about, that we are in union with Christ and a part of the family of God, the body of Christ. This is simple, really. There, there's nothing that goes on in my family of six that does not affect me. Nothing. So anything that happens in my family, if it happens to my wife or one of my four children, it affects me, and it affects me greatly. I feel that. I, I sympathize with it. They hurt. I hurt. They rejoice. I rejoice. We understand that. It's the same as true with our body, Right? It's not as though something can happen to one part of my body and the rest of my body not be affected. No, it's quite the opposite. If, if something happens to any part of my body, the rest of my body is affected. I, 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 you know that I enjoy running. I love running. Well, I haven't been running. Why? 
Because my Achilles is hurting. And because of my Achilles pain, I don't run. It affects everything. It travels up my leg. It's not as though that's an isolated part of my body that is in no relation to the rest of my body. It affects everything. It's affected all aspects of my life physically. The habits that I do, that one part. So we should understand that we are responsible to others in the body of Christ. We have a responsibility to one another. We're called the body of Christ. We're called the family of God. We understand that in our family context. We understand that in our body. We need to understand it as it relates to the people of God and being a part of the people of God as well. And so that's why he says, he gets into talking about those who would cause any of these little ones, right? In verse 6, the first part of it, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, so whoever causes a believer to sin, that, that word this, for sin there is scandalizo, it's, it's, it's causing them to stumble or causing them to fall. Anyone who would do something that leads another believer to stumble into ungodliness or to stumble into sin, to fall into sin, anyone who would do that, he says, it would be better for them to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This great millstone here, it described the, the really big millstone that was used, the one that, that a man could not push, he couldn't move. It was so big that only, it was only moved and turned by, by tying a donkey to it, and, and it had the strength to turn it. It was a great millstone. He's saying, listen, it would be better off for you that if you cause one of God's people to stumble and fall into sin, it would be better off to tie that millstone to you and to toss you in the ocean. Now, this is a... Really a grim, a gruesome, a brutal death to consider, isn't it? It's a, it's a harsh word. It's a harsh punishment. It's a, a weightiness given to it. Why? Why, why, is, why does God take this so serious? Well, again, we're at union with Christ. Or you can think of it from this angle too, theologically. We've been adopted in Christ, right? So we have this great privilege as believers, those of us in here who are believers, we have this great privilege of bowing before God, and as we bow before Him in prayer, what do we call Him? O distant God, thou art not nonst to me. No. We bow before Him, and what do we call Him? Our Father. Our Father. He has adopted us. He is our Father. We are His children. And so He takes seriously if someone injures or causes one of His children harm. I was an intern in, in, in my home church in Cumming, Georgia, and every Wednesday night we had a, a, a fellowship meal, is what it was called, and everybody ate, and we had a gym, and so one end of the gym, everybody was around tables eating, the other gym was open, and kids were playing, and as an intern, I was around the kids and the youth a lot, and, and, and this one guy in the church, his name was Jack, had, had these two that little kids, they were wild, and they were playing, I was playing, and they were chasing me, and I was dodging them, and, and, and they're, you know, not getting tagged and stuff, running around, and, and all of a sudden, I found myself in the position where one of them was over here. He'd come running at me, and then one of them yelled, and I looked, and he's coming over here. And, and you know, the natural thing for me to do is to time it and to wait till they were both coming and to jump out of the way. And kaboom! I mean, they smacked each other and hit the deck. And I laughed just like you did at first until I realized what had happened. They're both squalling on the floor, and there's half the church sitting there eating, watching. 
including their dad, Jack, right? Jack wasn't happy in that moment. Jack didn't go, oh, <laughs> that was a great move. No, I caused harm to his two kids. I caused some big knots on their foreheads, right? And, and it, it frustrated Jack. He had a talk with me and said, listen, what are you doing? Why would you do that? You knew what was going to happen. Yeah. And then there was the big woe. I mean, you know, the senior adults in the, cl- in the gym, woe to him, you know. <laughs> woe to him. It was real. Why? Because they were Jack's children. And I brought harm upon them. I brought harm upon them. That relationship that we, that we have with our father, he takes it seriously because we are his children. We're his children. And so he takes it very serious when those would cause his children harm and cause us to fall into sin. So he speaks woe in in verse 7. He speaks woe unto those. There's two types of woe here in verse 7. He he says this kind of a double woe, right? Woe to the world for temptation to sin. This is more of a a sympathetic woe. You see these types of woes in Scripture. Woe to you. It's not something that necessarily you're doing deliberately. It's just woe to you for the situation you find yourself in. This is not a good situation for you. And man, sympathetic towards you, sitting good. And that's what he's saying. Woe, woe, a sympathetic woe to the world for temptations to sin. And he says, for it's necessary that temptations to come. Now, what does that mean, for it's necessary? Well, this is not a, for it is necessary that is by divine decree that Jesus has said, okay, or God has said, you know, I'm bringing temptations upon you. We know that, that God does not tempt anyone, right? James talks about that in James 1, 13 to 15. God does not tempt us. God does test us. We know that God tests us. You look at um, Psalm 11 and, and you look at um, Genesis 22, 1, we know that God tests us, Right? And so he says it's necessary that temptations come. So it's not a divine decree that's bringing temptations, but it is one of the the reality of the fall. The reality of the brokenness that is in the world is the reality of what has happened, the punishment, the result of sin coming into the world, that it is happened, It it will happen. It is so that temptations are going to come. They're going to come because it is the world we live in as a result of the fall. But then he says, but, but woe, here's a woe of condemnation. The first one's a sympathetic woe. This isn't good, right? The second one is a condemnation, a punishment, woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. The word of condemnation. Who was the first by which temptation came? Satan. Right? Satan in the garden. In Genesis 3, Satan brings temptation before Adam and Eve. And as a result, what is the result of that? Satan brings sin and temptation to Adam and Eve, and God curses Satan. He cursed him and brought forth enmity upon him. In, in Matthew 13, 40 to 42, we, we studied that as the, the parable of the weeds. Right? That there's, there's weeds amongst the wheat and the people of God that, that gathered in the people of God. There are some who are unbelievers, some who are believers, and, and it'll be at the final day in which we truly see and truly know. But in that passage in verse 40 and 42 of Matthew 13, Jesus explains that parable, and this is what he explains. He says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. 
The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. So those weeds, those unbelievers who have brought temptation upon the people of God, who have caused the people of God to sin, to stumble into rebellion or to sin or to fall in, in, into ungodliness. He says all those causes of sin, He will cast away, He will throw them into the fiery furnace. Listen, this, this should bring somewhat of an ominous weight to you. Jesus is speaking woe and condemnation to those who bring temptation to His people. It should be a clear warning to any who are in our midst today, if you're an unbeliever and you kind of revel in and enjoy seeing an unbeliever fall. If you enjoy seeing an unbeliever struggle and fall and be tempted into sin, this should be a really ominous word to you from God's holy word. Woe to you, Jesus says. You, you may laugh now. You may find it amusing now to see a man or a woman of God stumble into sin. But it will not always be so for you. There will be a day in which the punishment is paid and it's worse than you can imagine. And so you need to be warned by this text. If you're here and you're an unbeliever and that's you and you're, you're kind of stance towards the people of God, you need to be warned this morning. See, we as believers, we can't fall into this kind of sterile view of Christianity that leads us to not take any responsibility for those around us. Jesus definitely would speak to the unbeliever, but he, he's speaking in a way that you can really find application here to both unbelievers and believers. Certainly the one who would bring temptation into the, the life of a believer here in, in verse 7 would certainly apply to the unbeliever who would seek to do that, but it does not rule out the believer as well. The believer has a responsibility to other believers. We do not live in a vacuum. We do not live as though our lives have no impact on the lives of those around us and the people of God. If you are living like this, believer, if you're living as though your words and your actions have no regard or no impact on the people around you, on other believers, please wake up. Wake up. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Your life, your actions have an impact on those around you, good or bad. I, I would say just recognize that, that your attitude around your house has an impact on your family. Your attitude towards the Lord, the things of the Lord, the world, everything, it has an impact on your children, on your spouse. It has an impact. You need to, to recognize that, that your words that you speak in the foyer that your words you speak at work, your words that you type on Facebook, or the words that you, you text to another has an impact on other believers. Your presence in the people of God or lack thereof has an impact on your church family. It tells them something. It encourages them one way or the other. It sends a message. It influences your family. It influences your church family. Your integrity, 
the way you carry yourself, the way you carry out your business dealings, the way you carry yourself as a student in doing your homework or taking tests in the, in the age of AI and chat GPT and all these things, your integrity on the papers you write, on the tests you take, preachers, pastors, their integrity on the sermons they preach, is it theirs? Or is it AI? That tells people something. It relays a message. It influences those around you. Your pursuit of holiness. Or your lack of pursuing holiness. Influences the believers around you. It tells them something. It influences whether and how they pursue Christ. We don't live in a vacuum. We need to understand, we need to see how things in our lives could potentially cause others around us to stumble. I want to just share with you this this statement that J.C. Ryle made. If you're in my Wednesday night class on J.C. Ryle, we read this Wednesday night and considered it. J.C. Ryle is writing a chapter on Lot. And how Lot lingered. It says in Genesis that, that, that the angels of the Lord came and they told Lot to flee Sodom. And in that moment, instead of just responding and fleeing, he lingers. And we talked about how Lot lingered before sin. It was something that showed the condition of his heart, lingering and living in Sodom in the midst of ungodliness and perversity. He just stayed there. He lingered there. And it was, became evident and showed forth in that moment where, when God said, flee, And so instead of fleeing, he just lingered in the midst of ungodliness. He lingered there. He didn't flee. Ryle applies this and talks about how the lingering heart, lingering soul has an impact on those in our midst, particularly in our homes and even in our church family. Here's what he says. He says, lingering souls are seen through by their own families. And when seen through, they're despised. Their nearest relatives understand inconsistency if they understand nothing else in religion, they draw the sad but not unnatural conclusion. Surely if he believed all he professes to believe, he would not go on as he does. Lingering parents seldom have godly children. The eye of the child drinks in far more than the ear. The child will always observe what you do much more than what you say. Let us remember this. That's a pretty pointed statement. And I would say it's very accurate. Now, I'll share with you the same thing I shared with my class. This doesn't mean, parents, that we are perfect. But it does mean that we need to be taking seriously our pursuit of holiness, our desire to live in godliness, our faithfulness to Him. And when we fail, and we do, and we will, When we fail, we take seriously God's call to confession and forgiveness and reconciliation. There's been plenty of times in my life and in my home where I've had to apologize to my children or to my wife and ask their forgiveness. And I hope in those times, in those moments, if they learn nothing else, they learn that I am a man who is committed to the Lord and that I believe truly in His grace and truly in my failings, that I'm not perfect, but I take seriously His grace and mercy in my relationship with them. So we 
teach them and we spur them on in the way we live out our faith in the home, in our church. We don't live in a vacuum. Please know that this morning. The third way to answer that question is this, is that we need to recognize that causing another believer to stumble is sin in our own life. Causing another believer to stumble is sin. I think sometimes we can just kind of shrug it off. Oh, my bad. And go about our day. The problem is it's weightier than that. It's, it's sin in our lives. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that important connection that is a result of union with Christ. And here, when we look at this text, we need to understand that there is an important connection between Jesus' words of warning to those who would cause a believer to stumble into sin and then what he calls us to do in response to sin in our lives. There's a connection there. It's not like he just randomly says these things. There's a connection. He calls us not to cause others to stumble. Woe to the one who brings temptation. Then he says, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better to, to enter into life crippled than to be cast into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better for you to go about life blind than to be cast into hell, the, the, the hell of fire. He's talking about Gehenna there. Gehenna was a, this, this, um, this valley or, or kind of a, a ditch, a low place near Jerusalem where they threw all the garbage. It was a defiled place. They threw all the garbage and burnt it. And so it was just constantly smoking, constantly burning. And so that's the description of hell, constant fire, constant burning, despised, defiled. He says it's better for you to do those things, right, than to be cast into hell. But he says your hand in verse 7, your foot, there's a connection there. If, if you're bringing temptation upon a believer, then you need to deal with your sin. If I'm doing something and I realize that the way I'm living, the things I'm saying, my activities, my, my lifestyle is causing others to stumble into sin, then I need to deal with my sin. That's what you know, Paul teaches this in 1 Corinthians 8. We talked about this our last sermon in, um, in Matthew 17. I don't know if you remember that. It was way back before Christmas. But we talked about this framework for Christian freedom, right? For how we live out our Christian freedom in a way that does not call, bring detriment or bring harm to other believers. But in, in 1 Corinthians 8, it's 8 through 10. Those three chapters, G, uh, uh, Paul talks about this. But in chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, he, he defines what we're talking about. He says, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. If you cause your brother to stumble, Paul's saying here, you can read the whole chapter later, 8 through 10, those three chapters. If you cause your brother to stumble, you are sinning against Christ. And so Paul's application in the moment, he says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He's committed to their good, to not making them stumble. So let me just real quickly rattle off a few things. How, how might we cause other believers to sin? What could we be doing in our lives that might cause another believer to sin? Well, causing them to, well, this wouldn't be a believer, but causing one to turn away from salvation in Christ. Causing one to turn. Instead of, instead of bringing a savory aroma of Christ through the way you live, the words you say, 
you bring reproach upon Christ. That those around you say, I, have, I don't want to have anything to do with Christ or this gospel. Why would I want to have anything to do with that? All as a result of the way we live or speak. Another way would be putting sin before them. Putting sin before the believers. What did Satan say? Take and eat. What did Eve say? Take and eat. Are you putting sin before others? Are you setting it before them? That's a way we would cause others to stumble. Another way we might cause others to stumble is stirring their affections for the world rather than for God. Are we doing things that are continually stirring others up to love the world more, to to love sin more? Or are we doing things that would stir them up to love the Lord more, to, to love His Word more, to pursue Him, to live in abandon to Him, to follow Him in faithfulness? What are we doing? What are we causing affections to be stirred up for? Or the things I'm doing, the activities that I'm leading towards, the things I'm bringing into my home, is it causing my, my family to be stirred up for Christ or stirred up for the world? Am I causing you as a pastor here at Grace Am I causing your affections to be stirred up for Christ or to be stirred up for something else? Fourth, cause others to believe or other believers to sin, leading them into sin or stumbling into sin by leading them to do what God forbids. Leading them to do what God forbids or by preventing them from doing what God commands. Either one of those. If we, if we lead them to do what God forbids or prevent them from doing what God commands, either one of those could cause them to stumble. Or what about this one? This is heavy in my life. A great weight of responsibility that, that I bear, but I think all believers bear. We can cause others to sin by teaching false doctrine, teaching wrong doctrine. My prayer is, God, help me to rightly handle and divide your scriptures when we stand here on a Sunday morning, when we teach on a Wednesday night, when we counsel other believers. Help me rightly handle your word because teaching false doctrine is going to lead people into sin. And I would say that, that we think about these are just six ways that we might cause others to stumble to sin. We need to prayerfully ask, God, am I practicing or doing any of these things? Is my life in the body of Christ here? Is it being carried out in such a way that it might cause another to stumble in one of these ways? What about at home? We need to prayerfully seek. Don't be so proud as to think that that could never happen to you, that you would never do that. Please don't. All right, our final question. This is a short one. Final question of the text, verse 8 and 9. If this is the case, if you pray, right, and you say, God, reveal to me if there's any way in me that's, that's ungodly, anything, sin in me, anything in my heart, if there's anything that's leading others to sin, would you reveal that to me and, and God reveals it to you? Then our third question is, how do we respond? How do we respond to sin as it relates to other believers, this verse 8 and 9 is very clear. We are to respond decisively, radically, fully. We are to kill it, to get rid of it. Now, Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's, he's using intentional exaggeration. 
He's intentionally exaggerating to really drive home and prove the point. He does that earlier in chapter 5, verse 29. He does the same thing almost verbatim, the same exact point here. There he's talking about the lust of the eyes. How do you deal with the lust of your eyes? And if, you, if you're walking around with lustful eyes, then deal decisively, fully, radically with it to get it out of there, to remove that lust and that temptation. Well, here it's in the context of causing others to sin. And causing others to sin, he says the same thing. He's, he's making this point using exaggeration. If, if that's unclear, what that means, just like me saying, man, we waited forever on I-75 yesterday trying to get home. There's no one in here that thinks, wow, you were there for all eternity? Crazy. No, you understand that I just mean I was there for a really long time, seemed like we were never getting off there, right? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's using hyperbole. He's using an example, an illustration to say, listen, if there is sin in your life that is causing you to tempt others and lead others to fall and to stumble, then get radical with it. Cut it off. Eliminate it. Cast it away. Kill it. Get rid of it. Remove it. We, we don't... We're not supposed to coddle it or just kind of go, oh, it's no big deal. No, we're to deal with it. We're not to ignore it. We're not to just let it linger. But isn't, isn't that what happens a lot of times if we're really honest? We, we realize there's sin in our life, there's a temptation we're struggling with, and we just kind of Either we coddle it and go, well, you know, or we try to justify it. Well, you know, it's, I mean, it's not that big a deal. I mean, it's not as bad as, you know, not as bad as what Mike's doing. I mean, good grief. You seen that guy? You know? Justify it. Or we just ignore it. Go, eh. I'm going to watch a movie to get my mind off of it. We just push it aside, let it linger. That's not what Jesus says. He says to kill it, remove it, do away with it. So how do we do that? How do we do that? The, the first thing I, I would say, how do, you, how do you do what Jesus is talking about here is one, confess it to the Lord. Agree with him that it is sin. Call sin what it is. This is what it is. It is sinful. It's rebellion. It's transgression. It's damning. I'm going to confess it to the Lord and call it what it is. And then repent of it. Turn from it. Turn from it. Confess it to the Lord and turn away from it. Turn to God. And then we, we need to remove anything that's drawing us into that rather than to God. That's where we get rid of it. If your phone is dragging you into temptation because you just can't resist posting that on Facebook or you can't resist texting that to that person, then get rid of it. Delete it. Get it off your phone. If there's something else that's causing you to be a temptation, or is a temptation in your life causing you to cause others to struggle? Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Remove the temptation. And at that point, I would say we look to God in prayer. Because that is difficult. If you've ever done what we've just said, it's difficult, isn't it? It's hard. It's hard. So we turn to God and we bathe it in prayer. God, please strengthen me, help me, equip me, help me to flee temptation. God, please strengthen me and be gracious to me to do that. I would also say you should invite another believer into your life. Be honest with them. Listen, I'm struggling with this temptation. This person comes around and I just want to put a little barb in there and just put a jab in there to make my point. Would you please hold me accountable to that, to pray for that person, 
and to encourage that person instead? I'm struggling. I need you to just check in with me. Hey, Sunday, how'd you do? Did you spur that one on towards love and good deeds? Or did you try to kick them down? Invite someone into your life to hold you accountable, to encourage you, to pray for you. And then finally, I would say this, is rest in the finished work of Christ. Rest in the finished work of Christ. We have to find rest in Him and His work on the cross. We have to do that knowing that we are not defined by, controlled by, or destroyed by sin. Do you understand that, believer? You're not defined by your sin. It's not become, it doesn't become the qualifying adjective of who you are. I'm a blank Christian because of your sin. You're not destroyed by it. That it's taken your salvation away. You need to understand that. You understand that because of Christ's work on the cross, you are no longer controlled by sin, but you have been set free from sin in Christ. So do not subject yourself again to a yoke of slavery, but walk in freedom with Christ. Walk in freedom with Him. Look to and rest in the cross of Christ. Remember when we struggle with sin, whether it's sin just individually in our private lives, whether it's sin corporately as a body, or whether it's sin in our lives that causes others in the corporate body to struggle and fall. Whatever it is, remember and realize that the ultimate death of sin came through the death of Christ. We look to Him. We rest in Him. We remember Him. And we think through when Jesus says, listen, you need to be radical in your approach to sin. You need to kill it, remove it, get rid of it. That the precedent we have set before us is God's dealing with sin. That God radically, fully, finally dealt with sin through Christ. And we need to see that. We need to remember that. That Christ is the answer. The work of Christ is what we rest in. We rest in it because God the Father took serious, decisive action to defeat sin and to redeem His people. Therefore, we have hope. Therefore, we have hope. Sin will not win the final day. We rest in Christ. We look to Him. I want to just close by reading this text to you. We think about Christ. We look to the cross. We have to go there. We have to go there and we talk about sin. If we don't go to the cross, we don't remember the work of Christ, it can be very just robbing and, and just just rob us of joy in our soul. It can, it can be very weighty as far as just weighing us down because we try to take it all on our own shoulders and try to deal with it all ourselves. But we have to go to the cross and look to Christ. Look what he's done. Hebrews 9, 26 to 28, hear this. Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Why? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. He's our hope. He's our hope. Listen, believers, we're not going to encounter a day where we don't go through temptation and the difficulties of the world. It is necessary that some temptations come. It's just a matter of living in the fallen world. And the reality is that there will be those around us that, that bring temptation into our lives. Perhaps they're unbelievers, perhaps, unfortunately, maybe even a believer. But we look to Christ. We look to His grace and His cleansing and His sacrifice that put away sin once for all. Once for all. We look to Him, we rest in Him. And so we eagerly wait for Him. We eagerly wait for Him. So look, brothers and sisters, to the cross of Christ today. My question as we close is this. Is Christ your hope? Is He your hope? Do you look to Him? Do you trust Him and His finished work on the cross to deal with your sin? If you're, if you're here and you're an unbeliever and you're trying to deal with sin, you're trying to deal with things you feel guilty about and, and the condemnation that you sense deep in your soul by ignoring it or by bringing something else in, it's not going to last. It's not going to last. You're going to continue living under that weight because there is no one who can deal with your sin outside of Jesus Christ. So look to Christ in faith. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has paid for sin once for all, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He redeems you. He cleanses you. He sanctifies you. That you might pursue holiness, freely walking in righteousness, not controlled by sin, not destroyed by sin, not defined by sin, but defined by being a child of God, defined by being His, walking in freedom, walking in life. It's only possible a turning from sin and trusting Christ in faith. And so I would appeal if you're an unbeliever to do that today, that you would turn from sin and trust Christ. Believers, the encouragement is clear. We look to the cross and we rest in the finished work of Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we 